0: join me with a reading in the reading of God's Word this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Father in heaven, we have sung our praise to you this morning. Father, we have sung words of surrender. I pray that they're more than just words. I pray that you know that from me and that you know that from all of us and from this church as a collective. That our surrender is more than just words sung because the tune sounds good. But it is our heartfelt promise, heartfelt surrender of self to you so that you could do what you want in us. Father, be glorified in the reading of your word this morning. Be glorified in the doing of your word as we go out of this place. Help us to apply this teaching to our lives today, Lord. May you be witness. In Jesus' name, amen. Seated. And if you do have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn to the second chapter of Philippians. We are continuing our study now in Philippians. The reading today was from chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. In verses 5-11, through you might remember from last week that Paul waxed glorious when he spoke of Jesus and his self-sacrificial attitude, how Jesus set aside his prerogatives and rights as God and became like us so that he might die in our place. The apostle used the example of Jesus in an effort to help the believers at Philippi see that both their unity and the success of the mission of the gospel into which they had partnered with Paul and with God required a similar willingness on the part of every member of their fellowship to forego their rights and prerogatives for the sake of others. Now, we don't do that. And I read one guy, Oswald Chambers was writing in a commentary on this, um, where he was writing in My Utmost for His Highest, and he wrote something about, um, you may not be ready to die as a martyr like Paul but would you be willing to be a doormat? We don't like that terminology. When we talk about doormats, nobody wants to be that. I don't want to be a doormat. In fact, we'll say when we talk about the scriptures that God's not calling us to be that. But God's calling us to actually abandon our prerogatives and rights as Christians, abandon our prerogatives and rights as members of the human race, actually, for the sake of the gospel, in the same way Jesus did. And that's not something that the flesh does easy. In fact, if we're honest, it's not something the flesh does at all. The flesh wants what it wants and it does its own thing. We're selfish people. I don't need you to tell me that that's true about you and you don't need me to tell you it's true about me. The fact is we have those moments of selfishness and self-centeredness and they are almost overwhelming. But as we get to this passage here in Philippians chapter 2, as we... Now that's. The... Originally, and, and as we get to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, we recognize Paul is addressing two individuals in the church, Iodia and Syntyche. And you keep on hearing me say that name. But these two people are responsible for a lot of the stuff that Paul's having to address in this church. And in 4 2, he's going to address them directly. But as we entered into chapter 2, and now all the way through chapter 3, we're going to see he is now addressing the congregation as a whole. Now, I struggle with this. A lot of commentators try to say that this is a, a corporate address. And it is. When I preach to you, I'm preaching to all of you. But all of you is made up of many of you. In other words, this congregation is made of many me's, many individuals, right? The Bible talks about that in Romans, where Paul describes the body of Christ, this way in twelve, four, and 5, he says, for we, has, we have many members in one body. And all members don't have the same function, so we being many, the congregation, are one body in Christ and individually members of it. And so when Paul's addressing Philippi, this congregation about unity and about the mission that they're on and the importance to be unified if they're going to keep on track with the mission, he is not only speaking to the congregation as a whole, but because salvation is worked out one by one by one by one, he's speaking to all of us as individuals. And as I come to you this morning, I'm speaking to you the same way. I I believe that there is a corporate application to this text and an individual application of this text. When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, in one sense, it's it's a corporate call. It's a corporate call that we police one another, that we learn how to avoid the conflicts that get us... And how do you avoid conflict? How do you avoid conflict that gets you into the kind of Um, disharmony that they were experiencing in that church. I told you a minute ago, you're going to have to forego your rights, even your right to be right. See, a lot of us, we argue for the sake of argument. Argue to be right. But a lot of times, it's just as important to argue for reconciliation for, for healing. I guess I speak of that primarily from the mindset of marriage right now. Husbands and wives are often in each other's throats and they're arguing with each other. And usually it's the wife is going to be right of them. And in most households, how many, how many of y'all know it's usually the woman that is right? Okay, well Just in case you didn't know that, I'll just school you. Uh, generally that's the case. And in, in those rare cases when they're wrong, they're still right and so we have to remember that um, and be aware of that at all times but instead of arguing for the sake of being right because I'm right I'm going to argue until you accept the fact I'm right let's work for harmony in the home instead and in the church instead of arguing for what's for uh, my right because uh, I'm right let's, let's fight for the unity of the congregation and unity of believers You see, uh, Paul looked at it the same way I do. Our body of Christ, this this local assembly of believers, is a lot like this body here. Every aspect, every cell, every organ better be working together or I'm sick and I'm in trouble. And Paul viewed it the same way when he looked at the body of believers. Uh, He saw that if there was a conflict in the body, in my flesh, we would be ill. Likewise, if there's a conflict in the body of believers, we suffer. We're ill. And so he encouraged us to work out our differences. But I would say to you that the reason this is a corporate message is he also wanted the rest of the congregation to avoid becoming presently involved in the dispute of ordians and psyche, except to help them get over it. If you're looking for two, Paul was arguing that they would get over it. He said, he asked... He asked uh, to help them work it out. So he he encourages the body of believers to help them resolve their dispute, to get over their differences, and to help the congregation as a whole to avoid future conflicts when possible, as well as to manage them more wisely when they do arise. Paul in writing to the whole congregation was asking every individual to consider their walk. He might have been asking the church to consider their presentation of the gospel to the community that they were in. And we'll find that as we continue to unpack these five verses. But he was also telling us, because we all make up the body, to consider our individual walk. To continue to obey the Lord. To let God have control Of their lives and to serve together as a church which draws the lost like a light draws moths. To cling to the word of life. And actually, we could probably preach a long message on clinging to the word of life all by itself. Jesus and his commands are the word of life. I want to begin today or unpack it this way first by telling you what your responsibility is. And you may not have known it before because we hear it all the time. Uh, by grace, you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10, through 10, right? It's not of works. And yet, we have a responsibility. Every believer in this room has a responsibility to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work it in. It says work it out. It doesn't say work at it. You're not earning it. Work it out. And he was saying, therefore, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, who is Paul to this church? Now, I think it's Colossae that he was not this. But to Philippi, he was a father. And I don't mean a father in a Catholic sense. I mean a father in a foundational sense. as in in the progenitor. He was the one who gave birth, God through him, to the church at Philippi. In Colossae, that's not true. It's a different set of situations there, but for the time being, because we'll talk about Colossians at some point later. He was a spiritual father at Philippi, but guess what? Paul didn't save him. And so we make that mistake, we put men on pedestals and stuff like that. Paul didn't save him, and he wasn't trying to put himself on a pedestal. But when we read that, verse 12, we should read it with that understanding. Paul was writing not only as a fatherly teacher, but as a partner in the gospel mission with the Philippians. It wasn't to himself that he was asking believers to obey and be accountable. He was instructing them to continue to work out their salvation before God. It was to please God that he was instructing them. Not to please Paul. Paul would benefit in some way because he would be proud of his family, just like you're proud of your boys. And and we find ourselves proud of our children when they accomplish something well. And when they don't, we may be disappointed, but we encourage them along the way to do better next time. And so Paul, as he encounters the Philippians here, he was trying to kind of nudge them along a little bit as a father to this body. But he he was not telling them, you're accountable to me. He was identifying, you're accountable to God. As you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence, but now in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul was pointing to the Lord, before whom we all live, and in whose sight everything is done. He was encouraging believers to submit with fear and trembling. Now, in, in Psalms 2.11, we, we read, and it's kind of oxymoronic in, in, in Psalms 2.11, and let me, let me read it to you real quick. Um, in Psalms 2.11, we read about fear and trembling, and it, and it comes across kind of strangely to us. It says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been rejoicing with my knees knocking, it's it's unusual, but this is an idiom uh, in the Old Testament for standing before the Lord or working out your salvation in awe of and reverence of Him who saved you. All right, it takes it back to Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven, where, Je- where Jesus is celebrated by Paul, and now he's saying, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, in awe and reverence to the will of our holy God, who sees and in whose presence we." but I want to say this too that God isn't standing with a whip in his hand expecting compliance and prepared to force it from us if necessary he's after one thing from us Romans 8 29 identifies it he's after one thing that we've conformed to the image Of his son. That we be conformed. That's what God is after. Uh, You can't look like Jesus. I can't look like Jesus. He's after our character. That it would be Christ-like. And we all know that that doesn't happen. In fullness. In this life. But we've been predestined. To be like Christ. Or at least growing in that direction day by day. It's a gist of Paul's admonition. To work out our salvation. And he's calling believers to work towards the completion of it. Well, if If to the completion of it, then what, what is salvation? Most of us view salvation as a single phase operation. When we look at salvation, we consider salvation to be, I have been saved. Larry's experienced it. I've experienced it. Maybe you have. You'll talk to people and what they have to say is, I have been saved. I am saved. I'm a." child of God, and they're resting on that salvation without anything else accompanying it, without anything else. Salvation, I'm saved. And that's it. But that's not really it. I want you to hear me carefully that salvation is a three-phase process. The initial one is justification. Initially, we have been saved, have been saved in a judicial sense. Almighty God has forgiven our sins through the shed blood of Jesus. And you can see the outline on the back for the scripture references there. Romans 5.9 says, much more than having now been justified by his, by Jesus' blood, we shall be saved by wrath or from wrath through him. So we've been justified. We've been set apart. We have been saved. If you're trusting in Jesus today, you have been saved. But there's a second phase. And the second phase is that of you are being saved. What does that mean? Well, that, that really gets to an idea that we have in theology and that maybe you have used yourself called progressive sanctification. It's that day-to-day process and, uh, of progressing in the, in the life of Christ. It's a going forward and working out your faith, if you will. I would say, and somebody might argue with me, I don't know, because sometimes I twist these words, but It's a process kind of like the process of regeneration. We were this and we're becoming that by God's power. It's a process as we submit to the Holy Spirit of Him who saved us and is transforming us. Remember in Romans 12 and 2, we're told there to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Holy Spirit is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Guys, this is the theme of our life's journey of faith transformation. Progressive sanctification is your life. As a Christian today, it is your life. I have been saved. Yes, I have. But I am being saved. And if you're not being saved, you may not have been saved. Follow? Because it's a progressive thing. God has continued. That doesn't mean you earn salvation or you earn brownie points or anything like that. I think I read something, and I'm probably going to twist this little story up a little bit. But a guy showed up at St. Peter's Gate. Now, already you know this isn't something that's really whatever. And he got there, and the angel said, Sorry, it takes a 1,000 points to get into the kingdom. And the guy began, he was a Christian minister, and he began to say all the things that he'd done. the guy said, That only gives you one point. He said, Lord have mercy, where am I going to get the other 999? And he said, there you go, that's the rest of it, come on in. Because it's all about God's mercy, follow what I'm saying? It's all about God's grace. We're not earning salvation here, it's what I'm trying to say. But as we have been saved, now we're being saved. Um, when my children were born to me, I wanted them to walk in the way that I, I kind of led. You, you want your children to walk in the way that you, you lead. You want them to follow you. When we come to Jesus Christ, He says, follow me. And as we follow, we progressively are transformed and changed and grown up. It's the theme of our life's journey of faith. And along the way, as we live in surrender and submission to Him who saved us, we shed, as it were, the old man with his deeds Colossians and we put on the new man in verse 10 it says in Colossians 3.10 I put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him pressing on as Paul said in Philippians 3. Now, Philippians 3, we're going to study later, but I wanted to give you this passage because this is Paul's life. Paul said the same thing I'm telling you today. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. What was he trying to apprehend? Christ's likeness I, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind me, which may have been his failures or his successes, either one. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was on a journey. He was pressing on. He was pressing into Jesus. He was being progressively transformed. When we meet Paul in Acts, he has an attitude problem. Now, I'm not talking about on the road to Damascus. I'm, I'm talking about after John Mark decided that he was going to go his own way in one of the mission journeys. Paul got angry about that, and he wasn't letting that go. So when it came time for the second journey, and it was suggested to him by Barnabas that John Mark go, he said, I'm not taking him with me. He already abandoned me once. So Paul had some growing up to do. But by the end of his life, he requested that John Mark come to him before he died. It tells me of the progressive transformation God was working in Paul's life. And finally, so I said, we have been saved. We are being saved. And guys, one day we shall be, we will be saved. That is, we will fully realize the benefits of salvation finally arriving where Christ is and sin ain't. Bad English, solid truth. What I'm trying to get at is Paul implies something you may not have addressed or thought about. There is a personal component to the process of our salvation which goes beyond the application of the blood of Jesus in our lives to living out the reality of our salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying we're adding something to salvation. I'm saying the blood of Jesus is enough. But I'm saying that he who is covered by the blood of Jesus is going to live a new life, a different life. And it does not happen It does happen all at once in one sense. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, uh, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So in one sense, we're changed. And in another sense, it'll take a lifetime to get down the road of transformation. And we still won't finish. We'll still be in the process of changing when we die. But there's a personal component of this. It involves, excuse me, the yielding of our wills to the will of God and an active participation in our process of sanctification. One of the very few instances where, I agree with Calvin, and you may be a, Reformed theologian here today or not, you may be a Calvinist. I don't know. I'm not. But in this case, I, believe I agree with John Calvin. And he said, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. Faith alone saves. But faith that saves is not alone. Something accompanies it. What does it accompany it? That progressive work of transformation to change the changed life of the believer. Our responsibility in the process is made clear in passages like 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in himself what purifies himself. This is an act that you're doing. You purify yourself as you have this hope. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 7.1, the Bible says, therefore, having these promises, and those promises are the promises of eternal relationship with God the Father, according to chapter 6 of that book, verses 16 through 18. It says in 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have those promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you see the personal part of this? Even in Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14, those that came out of the great tribulation washed their robes and made them white in the blood of a lamb. There is a personal component to your salvation. Progressive sanctification or growing up in the Lord is your responsibility, but you don't do it alone. You don't do this alone. I want to say this before I move to that idea. That salvation is all about action. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about it? Salvation is all about action. First, God acted in sending Jesus. Next, Jesus acted in selflessly giving himself on a cross for our sins, for our sakes. Third, people like us respond in faith and repentance to him who died in our place. And then finally... After that, we obedient, and it's not finally actually, we obediently live out our lives towards Christ, and then Jesus returns for His people. Action, 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 action. It's all action. I've seen way too many believers that for them, salvation begins and ends with, I am saved. There ain't no action. They sit right there, and they wait for Jesus to come back. And that ain't salvation They sit right there, and they never change. They remain who they were when Christ met them. And that ain't salvation. When God meets somebody, He enters into their life, and He transforms them. He begins to do a work. He expects you to walk and follow Him along the way. But He's going to help you here. The Lord is committed, I want to say, as we move on to verse 13, the Lord is committed to work into us His divine resources. If it's our responsibility, folks if it's our responsibility to work out our salvation, when we surrender to that mindset and follow the spirit in that labor of becoming more like Christ, Jesus, or God, provides us from his divine resources of grace the ability to do it. Look at there, verse 13. For it's God, it says there, who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Guys, we are called to actively participate in our salvation. To live out our faith. But the Bible says in Ephesians two nine, and you may have missed it the last time I quoted it, we are his workmanship. So, while on the one hand you have a responsibility, you're also a vessel that God's making. I read a Spurgeon quote that I didn't agree with. It was crazy. He was talking about us as blocks of marble. And within us is the image or the, the shape of Christ has been drawn out. And that it's up to us to, I don't, I've never seen a block of marble carve itself into the image of Christ. Guys, see, God puts the image there. But it ain't us that chips that away. For it's God who wills and does. It's, it's God in us who does the chiseling. It's God who does the work of shaping us we are his workmanship and god is dedicated to actively participating in our spiritual maturation he's at work within us first thessalonians 3 12 and 13 tell us this and may the lord this is a prayer of paul and may the lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints While well, on the one hand you are responsible on the other hand God's at work to make you this God's at work to shape you into this person one can't help but see the grace in Paul's words it is God who works in you do you see the grace of that? One man quoting Augustine said, God gives us commands we can't perform that we may know that what we ought to request from Him. There are things we can't do. Or there are things we won't do. We won't. So God gives us the ability to work that out. The people at Philippi needed to change some things that they were doing. In reality, so do we. See, I really can't let us go uh, and just talk about Philippi. Because I'm ministering to the church at Weston. And My wife told me, Rich, you can't talk to them like a daddy. And you can't talk to them like a mama. You can't talk to them like a parent. So I'm talking to you as a brother in Christ. Because just like Paul was to Philippi, we're partners in this work. We're supposed to be. We have some things that we have to change, and it would take too long for me to begin to enumerate all of them. But I'll say this to you. In three weeks or four, we have a business meeting here where we elect members, uh, officers, to serve in this congregation. Do you know how we've handled it in the past? We've laughed about it as we've let the last person who did it do it again. Nobody's been willing to step up and take responsibility or do anything. They've been willing to let it go. And time and time again, what I see is burnout from those people that get involved. Give up. And I'm telling you, it's not a laughing matter to serve Jesus. It's a responsibility. And so in my mind, while they may have griping and complaining to work out at Philippi, you and I, maybe at this church, we need to rethink our idea about service. And are we really surrendered to Jesus or not? Uh, I'm not going to say any more about it now because we got plenty of time between now and then for me to talk further. God reminds us that we need to change through Paul's words in verses 12 and 13. He reminds us that we need to change when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he presents us with the superior example of Jesus' self-sacrificial attitude in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 so we could get a glimpse of what it really looks like to be about the mission and not about myself. And then Paul tells us that only by an act of grace and our submission to the Holy Spirit will we accomplish the transformation God desires in our life. It's not a matter of self-determination. You can only go so far with that. It's a matter of submission and let God have it. God is at work within us, within you and within me, within this church, energizing and empowering believers through the inworking of his Holy Spirit to do what pleases him. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. It's not in our human nature to humbly bear with an unbearable person or unbearable situations. It's not in our nature. When things get haywire, we tend to get haywire too. If somebody gets uppity, if they start yelling at us, what happens? We elevate our voice. We're going to yell right back. We're not going to stand it for very long. It's not in our human nature to be patient in those moments or to humbly bear with such situations. But when we turn to the Lord in prayer to do what we know He's moving us to do, things like to love the unlovable, forgive the unforgivable, and bear the unbearable, when we turn to him for that, he gives us the power to do it through the Holy Spirit, who is resident within every believer. You can do it because of him who works in you. you got to get out of his way. God's word is effective, First Thessalonians 2.13. It's effective in the lives of believers who are under the influence of it and strengthened by God's spirit in the inner man. It's the Spirit of God that enables us to get past our differences and our disputes, isn't it? To maintain unity, to grow spiritually, to be neither barren or unfruitful, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.8, but to grow in the knowledge or service of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say something else, and this may be confusing, I don't know. I don't think it's confusing, I think it's a paradox. God both is and is not an enabler. It's hard to hear. God both is and is not an enabler. You understand the negative aspect of that. If we are not actively participating in the process of our sanctification... Or in the process of the transformation of our lives by exposing ourselves to God's word and renewing our minds thereby or submitting to his spirit and seeking his power to will and to do for his good pleasure in prayer. God's going to leave you in stagnancy. This is how he's not an enabler. If you're not willing to walk with him, he'll leave you right where you are. He wants you to come along, but he'll leave you right where you are. But if, on the other hand, you're willing to follow. If you're willing to actively participate in the process, the Lord will spare nothing of His resources to bring our transformation to pass. Now, I'll tell you, and some people don't like this and they don't agree with it and I don't really care. Everybody has their own understanding, I suppose. I think God brings adversity into our lives for more than, and in fact, I think often there's a a reason for it that we don't even get. When adversity comes into your life, God's trying to get your attention. I don't think it happens happenstansily or circumstantially or for no reason at all. I think God's got a plan in the adversity. His plan in Job's life was to prove something to Satan. But in the process, he proved something to Job because Job was a self-righteous man. He didn't know that he was a self-righteous man, but he, you sure do discover it as you read that. Job was self-righteous, and God called him off his high horse, and when he got back down off it, God blessed him. But he allowed adversity in his life to tell Satan, look, this guy worships me no matter what I do. And he showed Job that when he humbles himself before God, God bless you. He is and is not and enabling God. Well, one man said concerning the believers of Philippi that they needed to show outwardly what God had done inwardly. And I'm telling you, you need to show outwardly what God has done inwardly. inwardly. We do that in a baptismal pool. Oftentimes, that's the first illustration. And frankly, guys, sometimes that's the last one where we demonstrate what God has done inwardly Outwardly, We come to the baptismal pool and we demonstrate that we laid down with Jesus Christ in likeness of his death and we raised up in the power of the Holy Spirit into newness of life. And that's it. But the newness of life never comes forth. All believers are to show outwardly what God has done in them. The gospel has perhaps no greater and earthly witness than when believers' lives are conformed to it. So let me get to the nitty gritty of this. Verses 12 through 15 pinpoint some things. If you don't read it carefully, you're going to miss what he's actually saying. As we read together and we learn that we need to work together for the sake of the lost, he says in verse 14 do all things without grumbling. I'm sorry, without complaining. Different translation, without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. What was Paul's concern for the church at Philippi? His concern was that they would be known to the community to which the church was set for the right reason. And that the testimony of the church would be effective there. To accomplish that, however, the Philippians would have to set some things straight in their assembly. They had to get some things right. Paul said, do everything without complaining and disputing, which is also arguing, that you may become. And when he says that you may become, the implication is, because you are not. And what they were not were shining as lights in the darkness. And what they were not is blameless and without offense before the community in which they were uh, existing. And what they were not was without fault. What they were not was harmless. These are the things they were not. He says, do everything without crumbling and explaining. Listen, guys, get off each other's backs. That's basically what he was saying. Resolve your disputes because you're offending the ministry and you're creating a problem for the telegraphing of the gospel to the community around you. These people would become those things. They would become without fault, blameless, harmless, and shining as lights for the Lord in the world as they lived out the faith that they professed. For the time being, Non-Christians were not being attracted to him by the saints' strife and contentions. Philippi. In this commentary on Philippi, uh, uh, on this letter to the Philippian church, Pastor Roger Ellsworth wrote, and I'm going to read this entire paragraph that he wrote because I think it's significant. It convicted me. In fact, as I read it, it punched me right in the face. Certain things are simply out of keeping with the Christian faith. And when unbelievers see these things in us, they are quick to conclude that there is nothing to our Christianity. Complaining and grumbling are certainly among those things. Christians believe that God is sovereign over all things, including even those circumstances that they find unpleasant and undesirable. But when we complain and grumble, we're telling those around us that we believe God is doing a very poor job, and if given the opportunity, we could do much better. If we're not on our guard, grumbling can become a way of life with us. The weather isn't what we'd like it to be. People don't treat us the way they should. The church leaders don't handle things correctly. And the list could go on. We can regard such crumbling as harmless and inevitable as I did when I approached this issue in the introductory discussion about Philippi. But the God who found it so revolting in Israel is every bit as displeased with it today. As he was then. Turn with me just for a moment for a frame of reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10 and 11. It's the frame of reference. This is a continuation of the statement that he's begun in verse 8. nor complained, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. He's speaking of Israel of old. And they were written for our admonition. What does that mean? So that we wouldn't do the same thing. So that we would be warned. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now Paul's view in Corinthians was the time of reckoning is at hand. And if God didn't spare them who were complaining, what's he going to do with you? What's he going to do with me? Guys, it doesn't have to be griping and complaining. It doesn't have to be griping and complaining. If you don't find your flavor of of behavior unbecoming of Christ in the words griping and complaining, there are plenty of others that we could choose from. Every act of disobedience and behavior unbecoming of Christ-centered Christians, either in the church or of a church church, and or its individual members, makes the ministry in his name for the time being, and perhaps indefinitely vain, meaningless, and unfruitful in the local community. Whenever a Christian leader gets a black eye, the church may feel it, but the community suffers for it. Why? Because they're not listening to the church anymore. The church's testimony has been spoiled for the time being and maybe permanently for some of them because of the act of one man. Sometimes it's because of the act of a whole congregation. Sometimes it's temporary and sometimes it's permanent. We can go a long way towards conquering, grumbling, and complaining by constantly keeping in mind the world in which we live and our responsibility in it. What's your responsibility, Christian? In this world, what's your responsibility? To eat, breathe, work, and die? Nope. Your uh, responsibility is identified in one place for sure in Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses eighteen through twenty. Your responsibility is to make disciples. Your responsibility is to witness the gospel, both in your life and by your bush through your mouth. Speak it, live it. Our responsibility in this world is to shine as lights. For whose sake are so we say, "Hmm, look at me, I am doing a great job for Jesus. No, it's for them outside who need to see something different in you before they believe in that difference and trust in Jesus. We need to remember our responsibility. Paul remembered his responsibility as a servant of the Lord in this world. Using a reference in verses 16 and 17 that takes us back to the Old Testament book of Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, regarding the sacrifice of a little wine, a hint of it, or a fourth of a hin I forget how much, just a small, it was small in comparison to the greater offering. And it made that offering a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Paul, there, speaking about that small thing which brought the major offering to completeness, he likened his blood as the wine of the drink offering which poured, was poured out on the bigger sacrifice. Paul expected, listen, I told you last week, the emperor in charge at that time was Nero. and He was a heartless man. And Paul, he may have said it would be better for me to be with you. It's more needful for me to remain with you but he wanted to go to be with God, in the back of his mind, he was resolved whichever one was going to be okay. Ultimately, Paul died. He didn't die like you and me may die of natural causes or some illness that shouldn't have happened. He died because he was martyred. And as we look at it here, he says, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith... I am glad and rejoice with you all. For, some, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. John MacArthur says here that Paul placed a greater significance on the faith and spiritual well-being of his readers than on his own life. To suffer for Christ's sake brought him joy. suffer for Christ's sake brought him joy and he wanted the Philippians to understand that perspective and rejoice with him he also wanted them to understand that joy doesn't operate in a vacuum it's directly related to godly living it's directly related to living into the salvation you have to actively participating in the salvation that you have Christ is the source of our salvation obedience is a sustainer we see this in David's cry of repentance. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation in Psalm 51, after he had fouled up and been called on the carpet for it finally. And he realized that he had messed up before God. And his prayer was Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit in me. He was contrite, he was broken. Paul knew the joy of the Lord because he trusted Christ and obeyed his will. David knew the joy of the Lord because he trusted God and obeyed his will. And when he fouled up, God, like a good father, was right there. But he loved him anyways. The scarcity of joy and godliness in the world today makes it imperative that Christians manifest those characteristics of obedience and trust. As we do, others are going to see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, and that's the point. How do others glorify our Father in heaven? How do they glorify our Father in heaven by saying, "The church at Westhoff, man, those people are great, man. They are living for Jesus. That's nice, but that ain't how they glorify Him. You know how people glorify God by becoming His children." I think we, be, we glorify God. I think the ultimate way of an individual glorifying God is when they finally come to the end of themselves and the beginning of God and they look up for the first time and they honor and they worship Him and they reverence Him. And that's glorifying Him. Listen, as I wrap it up today. The mission of the church is the transmission of the gospel. There's no other work. The mission of the church is the transmission of the gospel. That they see Him in us that we do not detract from the message. But rather hold it. Hold it out. To those outside of the church. Illustrating it with our lives. Lived in submission. So that they may glorify our father in heaven. By coming to like faith. As we have. Well I said that this message poked me in the eye. And it truly really did. Because I find myself complaining way too much. How about you? You ever been in Houston traffic and griped about it? You ever been in San Antonio traffic and griped about it? You ever been in any traffic and griped about it? Nobody's happy about being in the traffic jam. How do you handle that? When somebody hurts your feelings, do you gripe and talk about them behind their back? I may not have named your issue, but what I'm trying to get you to see is that you need to abandon your prerogatives. You need to abandon what you feel like is your right for the sake of the gospel and for their need of hearing it. Whether that means abandoning it within the interactions that we have with one another or with our interna- interactions with them. Because if If your goal is to lead them to Christ, you don't want to argue with them about it. You want to help them into it, don't you? So actually this message has a couple of of points. A couple of of application points. And that first one is the giving up of prerogative. The second one is walking out your faith. Are you doing that? Are you uh, of the... the, uh, population of believers who have sat down on their blessed assurance satisfied that i'm saved and i know that i am and that's really all i need to worry about or are you walking out living out working out has god works in you his grace to make you able to do all those things to live a christ-like life to grow in christ-likeness the bottom line here is it begins with faith in christ now we blame we blame God for a lot of things we blame God for the decisions we make because our feelings are hurt and we walk away from something that he has us there for in ministry and sometimes we claim that we are believers in Jesus Christ that we're followers of Jesus Christ we're not now I had a man one time say you're 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 trying to call my salvation. You're trying to get me to call my salvation into doubt. No, I'm trying to get you to do what Paul did on many occasions. I want you to examine yourself to see if you're in faith. How do we examine ourselves? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you following him? Are you doing what he wants you to do? Are you progressively being sanctified? Are you working out your faith or are you just standing still? I can't answer that question for you. Is the old man dead? Some of you all are pretty young. So is the old you dead. And as the new you birthed in God through Christ come alive. I want you to think about that as I ask you to stand please.